My name is Bob Bailey. My name is Eve Stiles. My name is Roger Bryant. I'm the president of Passport Ministries. I am a retired dentist. I'm a designer. I gave my life to Christ on July the 4th, 1976. I became a Christ follower in my teens. I became a true follower of Christ last fall. I've been at New Life Church since the spring of 1990. September of 2000. I started attending New Life around 2007. I grew up in a uh, Baptist church. I grew up in a non-Christian home. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is learning to be like Him. The biggest challenge in my walk with Christ is maintaining a daily Bible study. I am everybody. I am everybody. I am everybody. Those are some of the everybodies who uh, call New Life their home church, and so you'll be meeting several of those folks on screen every week, so you can look forward to that. Well, happy Valentine's Day. I just love you guys. I hope it's a sweet day for you. And uh, we are launching and diving into a study of the book of 1 Corinthians. So if you have your Bibles, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This letter written by the Apostle Paul to this horrible church. I mean, it's like the worst church in the New Testament, the church at Corinth. They were doing all kinds of stuff. They were taking each other to court, suing each other. They were having sex with the wrong people. They were getting drunk at the communion table. And uh, we're going to actually be celebrating communion a little bit later on, but we're not going to be getting drunk as we do that. There was bickering and fighting and quarreling going on, and they were, uh, you know, worshiping celebrity preachers, lining up behind their favorite teachers, and, and just all this stuff was going on. And Paul, who had started the church, he'd founded the church at Corinth and had really been their first pastor for the first 18 months. There, I mean, he was just compelled to write them as he heard about all this stuff that was going on. And he actually, uh, scholars think he actually wrote them four letters. Two of those letters made it into our canon of Scripture, First and Second Corinthians. But you can read in First Corinthians chapter 5, he says, In my previous letter, and you're going, what previous letter? I thought this was First Corinthians. Well, all I can figure is he was so flustered and upset at this church and how they were living their lives and how they were dragging the name of Christ through the mud that that he was not in the spirit when he wrote that first letter to them. And God just said, you know, let's not include those in the Bible because, um, you know, you were just fired up and upset and, and who knows what all he said to them in those letters. But Paul was a spiritual shepherd and he longed for his people to do well and to grow spiritually. And so that's some of the background to the letter of 1 Corinthians. I titled this message, Called, Gifted, and Worldly. And uh, that really is an um, apt description of this church. So I'm learning to teach line upon line, precept upon precept. So would you read aloud with me the passage that we looked at last weekend? And just, just to review for a few moments, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 1. Let's read aloud the first three verses together, all right? Paul, called by the will of God to be an apostle of Christ Jesus 
and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Just to touch on a couple of our learnings from last weekend. First off, just note that Paul was exercising spiritual authority here. He starts out by saying, I just want to remind you, Corinthians, that I am an apostle. I've been called by God to be an apostle. And that was a spiritually authoritative role and position that Christ himself had given him. And so we need to be reminded that God has established spiritual authority in the church to protect the church, to direct the church. And he calls on his people to respect spiritual authority, something the Corinthians were not doing. They were not listening to Paul. And then the reminder that the church belongs to God. He says, I'm writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. And of course, I made the point last week that that church belonged to God as this church belongs to God. It's Jesus' church, not my church. It's not really even your church. Jesus' church. He's the head. And so God calls people to salvation and holiness through Christ, and then he gathers them together into local assemblies within a city in order that that church might reflect his beauty and his holiness to that city. And, you know, sometimes, though, the culture that we're in can, instead of us influencing the culture, the culture can influence the church. That's what was happening in Corinth. They were really becoming indistinguishable from the people around them who didn't know Christ. But our hope and prayer is that the Spirit of God would establish a subculture, a city within the city that would be contagious and reflect the glory of Christ to those around us. Well, then we saw that all true believers are saints in God's eyes, right? Holy ones, set apart for God. And some of you were having a hard time embracing that and and accepting that identity through the gospel, that God would call you to be saints, and he would view you as righteous in Jesus Christ. But it's true. It's a true statement. And yet, even as saints, we still need consistent challenge from spiritual shepherds to live up to our high and holy calling, don't we? And that's what Paul was doing with the Corinthians. It's what our teaching team here seeks to do with you, to challenge you. To live up to that calling that God has bestowed upon you. Living up to who you are. Then this is interesting. Every church exists in two dimensions. Paul says, I'm writing to the church of God that is in Corinth. But then he says, you've been called to be saints together with all those in every place who call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that tells us that the church exists both locally and as part of a worldwide movement, right? And I would encourage you sometime in the not-too-distant future, if you can, if you feel the tug of God, to take a trip, to go on a short-term missions trip and go to another part of the world and see what God is up to in other places. Meet some of his saints that call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, but maybe do so in another language, in another place, in another hemisphere. It's a great, great experience. And your appreciation for the worldwide church, the capital C Church of God, will grow as you see those things. And then he gives this wonderful greeting, grace to you and peace, wonderful blessings. 
of being a saint that come through Jesus Christ. Well, as we come to our section for today, I know that, that a lot of times when we read or study the Bible or hear a message, we start out with kind of this mindset that says, well, what's in it for me? What, what can be applied to me personally and individually? And that's okay. But I think as we look at 1 Corinthians, we need to have a larger perspective and say, not what is, what is in here for me, but what is in here for us? As a church body, as a body of believers, this letter was written to a church. Some scholars believe it was a house church with 50 or 60 people in it. And so if I could ask you to do this, just think about this in terms of all of us together as New Life Church Gehenna as we walk through 1 Corinthians together, okay? What's in it for us? What is God saying to us as a body of believers? This is really verses 4 through 9, the prayer of a shepherd expressing his gratefulness to God for his grace to this church. So read these verses, if you would, aloud with me, beginning with verse 4. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Now, when I was taught to study the Bible, I was taught that there's a three-step sequence that we need to use in order to understand and ascertain the Word of God. First is observation. What does it say? Second is interpretation. What does it mean? And third is application. How does it apply to my life? So I want to start with some observations, if I may, from this section of the Word of God, okay? I noted, first of all, that Paul is stating here that he regularly prays for this church. And in his prayers, he thanks God for God's gifts of grace given to the church there at Corinth. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. You might want to circle that word grace. We spent a lot of time on that topic in January here. And we know that the grace of God is his unmerited favor bestowed on undeserving sinners. And Paul is saying, you know what, guys? I pray for you a lot. I remember you before the Lord, and I thank God that he has graced you. He's given you so many gracious gifts. I think what we see here is the heart of a shepherd, the heart of a spiritual shepherd, thinking about this flock, this body of believers. I mean, he'd started the church. He'd been there. He'd pastored them for 18 months. And even though he's now in a different place, his heart is still with them. And he's saying, I want you to know I I love you. I care for you. I pray about you. I remember you before the Lord God when I pray. And I thank God for what he's doing in your lives. And that's what spiritual shepherds do. That's how God has gifted them. You know what? Certain saints have been given this spiritual gift of shepherding, I believe. Spiritual shepherding. It involves feeling responsibility for some other believers. Feeling responsible for how they're doing and how they're getting along and particularly for their spiritual growth. 
and how they're doing in that regard, how they're doing with God. A spiritual shepherd seeks to protect the flock from evil and from harm and from false teaching. The spiritual shepherd seeks to feed the word of God to the flock of God. And so I believe that in our body of believers here, God has gifted some of you with this gift of spiritual shepherding. If that's the case, I would encourage you to take the steps that you need to take to to lead a small group around here so that you have responsibility for your little flock of people that you're praying for and giving thanks for and pouring your life into and shepherding. Well, that's what Paul was, a spiritual shepherd. And so he prays for his people. And that's what spiritual shepherds do. Number two, Paul expresses his gratefulness to God for how God had graced this church. Verse 5, he says, you know what, guys? God has enriched you in every way. He's made you guys rich in spiritual blessings. And in verse 7, he says, you don't lack any spiritual gift. God has gifted your congregation there with the full range of spiritual gifts. Now, if you're a new believer, a new Christian, maybe that term is new to you, spiritual gift, okay? It's the word charismata. You heard that word before? You heard the word charismatic? That's where it comes from. Spiritual gifts, charismata. And you remember when we studied grace in January that we we discovered that that word is the word charis. So grace is charis and spiritual gifts, charismata. They're related. Do you hear the connection? Charis, charismata. And so you say, well, what are spiritual gifts? Spiritual gifts are special abilities that God, out of his gracious heart, gives his people to use to bless and build up the body of Christ. That's what spiritual gifts are. And so if you're a true saint, if you're a true believer in Christ today, you have at least one spiritual gift. that God has given you a unique ability that if you put it to work, if you exercise it, if you develop it, and use it in the body, the body will be blessed. People will be blessed and encouraged and lifted up and built up. There are many kinds of spiritual gifts, and in that church, all of them were represented. Unfortunately, some of the people there were showcasing their gifts and drawing attention to themselves and saying, hey, look at me. Look at the gifts God has given me. And... uh drawing attention to themselves instead of humbly using their gifts to build up others. So Paul's going to have to correct them. And when we get to chapters 12 through 14, we'll see how skillfully he does that. My third observation is that he says the church was especially rich in gifted speakers and knowledgeable people. Verse 5, he says, In every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. And I believe those are... Two categories of spiritual gifts, speaking gifts and knowledge gifts. Speaking gifts would be like teaching and preaching and those kinds of things. Knowledge gifts would be the gifts of wisdom and knowledge and discernment, those kinds of things. And Paul says, you guys are very extremely gifted in those areas in particular. Church at Corinth was crawling with great teachers, great speakers. People with knowledge, an extremely gifted church, but as we'll see, it was also an extremely worldly church and immature. And uh, that's a lethal combination, really. Gifted, worldly. (laughs) That can wreak havoc in a church, and it did there. 
And so Paul knew that and he aims to deal with it. Fourth observation is that uh, is this. Paul notes that the genuineness of God's work of grace in them was evidenced by how they received the message of Christ. Verse 6. Even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you. Now, this is kind of a strange statement. He's talking about spiritual gifts, and all of a sudden he just kind of throws this statement in there, and commentators aren't really sure why he did that. You could actually read verse 5, leave 6 out, and read verse 7, and they go together seamlessly. But he just he mentions this little statement, I think, to hearken back to the time when he was there with them, preaching the gospel, seeing people get saved and baptized and all of that. And he remembers when he was there that those gifts emerged and manifested themselves in that church very quickly, right from the outset, when they first trusted Christ. And then number five, Paul reminds the church that the same Jesus who saved them and gifted them is coming back, is going to return. You know, Jesus promised to come back, didn't he? You looking forward to that? To looking him in the eyes and seeing the one who died on that cross for you. Jesus promised to come back. In John 14, he said, I'm going away to prepare a place for you. And if I go, I will come again and receive you unto myself that where I am, there you may be also. He's coming back. I think Paul mentions this here because the imminent return of Jesus is yet one more motivation for Christians to live holy lives. Something the Corinthians were not doing, not taking seriously. I think what's happening here is Paul is in effect reminding them that one day you're going to look into the eyes of Jesus Christ and you're either going to be very ashamed or very confident when he comes, depending on how you're living your life. Spirit, as a spiritual shepherd, he, wanted that, he wants that moment for them to be a joyous one. You know, in the scriptures, the, the return of Christ is clearly seen as a motivation to live a holy life for the believers in Christ. 1 Peter 1.13 Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do, in all of your conduct. What's he saying? Jesus is coming back. Live a holy life. Live a life that reflects his character. Titus 2.11, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous of good works. So I think Paul is writing the Corinthians. He's saying, look, Jesus is coming back, so honor him by living a holy life. Hate sin. Love God. Live pure. He's worth it. And you're going to look him right in the eye one day, and you want that day to be a day of confidence. Paul wanted the church to get that. 
And then I notice this, that um, Paul declares, number six, that God will keep true saints believing in Jesus all the way to the end, guaranteeing their ultimate and complete holiness at Jesus' return. You know, last weekend we talked about the gap. Remember that? Between sainthood, this high and lofty position and identity that God has given to us, and our lifestyle. And we all understand there's a difference. There's a gap there. We're not yet all that we should be. Our lifestyle doesn't yet reflect who we are, but one day it will. One day when you see Jesus Christ face to face in an instant, that gap will be closed, closed, and you will be transformed fully into the image and likeness of Jesus Christ. It's going to be a great day in an instant. First John 3, 2, when we see him, we shall be like him. Paul's reminding them of that, and God will lay down the chisel and will say, it's a masterpiece. Well, do you see a couple of guarantees that are made here in verse 8? The first one he says is, our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end. Let me ask you a question. What is it that keeps believers believing when the wheels are coming off? When all Hades is breaking loose in their lives? What is it that keeps the people of God clinging to Jesus Christ? You know what Paul says? He says, it's Jesus. (laughs) Jesus will sustain you to the end. Jesus will keep you believing if you're a true saint a true child of God, he's going to give you the faith to keep believing all the way to the end, no matter what you're enduring. I've been following a story of a guy, um, Chris, I think you sent me this story. It's a a pastor mentor of mine and some other people, uh, some friends of mine. His name is Matt Chandler. He doesn't know he's a pastor mentor of mine. I just listen to his podcasts and things, but... um, Incredible situation. He woke up on Thanksgiving morning, cooked breakfast for his daughters, and then within moments lapsed into this violent seizure right there in his home. They called 911, rushed him to the hospital. They did all kinds of tests and discovered that he had a malignant tumor on his brain, a very aggressive stage three kind of cancer that was spreading rapidly. And as you can imagine, you know, this just shattered their whole world. He and his family, his wife. And the doctor said, we got, we got to do something. We better operate pretty quickly. So they scheduled a surgery date in January and went in and removed as much of it from his brain as they could. But it's, it's aggressive and its tendrils are reaching out and spreading. And so they started chemo treatments. And uh, some of you have been through those. And you know how they just rack your body. Lost all his hair. They're saying, you know. You might have a couple, three years to live, maybe. And so this is a pastor, okay? This is a guy who is, he's one of the, the, the new, young, evangelical pastors who's calling the American church back to God-centeredness, back to gospel-driven, Christ-exalting Christianity. He's doing the work of God, and he gets brain cancer. What would keep someone in that situation from turning their back on on God and saying, heck with you, 
Here I am doing everything that's right. I'm preaching the gospel for crying out loud. I'm helping people get saved. I'm pointing people to Jesus. And you do that to me? What would keep someone like that actually clinging to Christ and not turning their back on God? I read the article this week. He said, I, he said I've had one lapse of anger towards God. But he said, apart from that, Jesus has been sustaining me. Jesus has been sustaining me. Jesus is giving me faith to believe and to cling to him till the end, whenever that end might be. That's what Paul's saying here. Jesus will sustain you to the end. He will keep Matt believing to the end. He will keep you believing to the end of your life. And then he says a second guarantee, not only believing to the end of your life, but then guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he comes, you will be guiltless, blameless, clean before him. That's what grace does. That's what the cross and the gospel accomplishes in our lives. It erases and removes our sin so that on that day when we stand before Jesus, We stand clothed and cloaked in the righteousness, the very righteousness of Jesus. Not lugging around a bag of our own sins. This is is amazing. This is incredible. This is grace. And so with that confidence, number seven, Paul declares that his ultimate hope for the holiness of this Corinthian church that was not living up to their position in Christ His confidence was ultimately not in them, but in the faithfulness of the God who called them. I love the first three words of verse 9. Do you see it? God is faithful. You're going to need that someday in your life. You're going to need to remember that God is faithful. He finishes what he starts. When he makes promises... He guarantees them with the full backing of his character and his nature. He who began a good work in you will perform it all the way to the, to the day of Jesus Christ. I like how 1 Thessalonians 5.23 says it. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, make you holy completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body, that's about all there is to you, Be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 24, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Isn't that good? It's not all up to you. It's not all up to me. God has made guarantees. God has made promises. He is faithful. He will get us there. Guiltless and blameless on that day, standing before him. You know, if it was totally up to us, even as true believers, even as saints, it wouldn't happen. The verse of the old hymn reads like this. Let your goodness, like a fetter, bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the one I love. Here's my heart, O take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Let your goodness, like a fetter. That's not a word we use. What Do you know what a fetter is? Chain. You know what the heart cry is? God, chain me to you. (laughs) Chain me to your heart. 
Bind me to your heart, God, lest I wander away from you because I surely would apart from your chaining, sealing, binding love. God is faithful. I think uh, in the case of the Corinthians, Paul took great comfort in knowing that the ultimate condition of their lives and their holiness didn't rest on their efforts or his impressiveness, but on God's faithfulness. And that's so encouraging for spiritual shepherds to know with you that your ultimate Holiness before God does not rest on really even your own efforts ultimately or how gifted I am or our our leadership team is, but it rests on the faithfulness of God who called you and will complete what he started. So what's in here for us? What's the application for New Life Church Gehanna? How might the Holy Spirit want to apply these things to this church body today. I've thought about this a lot and prayed through this. And um, I think for this church that God, the spirit of God would ask us some questions today. I think we have some choices to make as a church. First question is this compromise or counterculture? Which will it be for new life church? Where might we have allowed our culture to seep into our church and draw us away from holiness? That's what was happening in Corinth. The culture of the city had infiltrated the church so that instead of being counterculture, they were almost indistinguishable from the culture around them. The result was that their witness was tainted, their influence was diluted. Their founder was disturbed, and the character of Christ was misrepresented to a watching world. I think we face that choice, don't we? Number two, will we be critics of the church or lovers of the church? Let's be careful to love the church of Jesus Christ despite its flaws. It's God's church. It's the bride of Christ. It is not perfect. It will never be perfect this side of heaven. Some people, you know, bounce around from church to church to church, hoping to find that perfect church. It doesn't exist. No church is perfect. You know why? Because it's full of imperfect people and imperfect leadership. Heaven will be that experience of perfect fellowship and unity sin will be gone it'll be a glorious time but this side of heaven we won't experience that not totally glimpses at times but you know it's in vogue these days to be critical of the church it's in vogue to to criticize the church and say you know well the church isn't cool enough it's not cutting edge enough i don't like this i don't like that i wish you know this were on or that were happening or I don't like his leadership style or her way of doing things. So what are you going to do? You're going to walk around being a critic of the church, finding all the things you don't like, all the things that are wrong with it? Or like Jesus, are you going to love the church despite its flaws? You know, Augustine, the church father, 
made a very crass statement once. He said, the church is a whore and she's my mother. (laughs) Think about that. She's messed up. She's imperfect. She's flawed, but she's my mom and I love her. And if she needs me, I'll be there. She's my mom. I think that needs to be our attitude about the church of Jesus Christ. Is it perfect? No, it's not perfect. But do you love the church? Third question I think the Spirit of God would have us consider. Are we going to be consumers or servants of the church? Are we going to be consumers of religious goods and services? Is that going to be our mindset? Or are we going to say, you know what, I'm here to actually serve the church? This question came up in our small group this last week. Very insightful discussion. Our group leader asked us, he said, in light of how the culture at Corinth was influencing that church in, in Corinth, how do you guys think that our culture is influencing us at New Life? And it led to a very interesting discussion. And you know what the rap is, don't you, against the American evangelical church, particularly the suburban American evangelical church? You know what the rap is? Full of consumers. Full of people who just make demand after demand after demand. I want this, I want that, I want this to align with my preferences, I want this to align with the way I like things. Consumers! Have we been in and infiltrated by our culture? Has it seeped into us by osmosis so that we come into the church with a retail mindset? You know, I used to shop at Meijer. Then they built Giant Eagle right around the corner, you know, one stoplight to Giant Eagle. And so, bye-bye, Meijer. (laughs) My loyalty was (laughs) very thin. You know, some people are like that with churches. Foreign, foreign to the New Testament. Will we be consumers or will we be servants of the church? Let's stop asking what's in it for me and start offering ourselves to serve other people wherever we can. This is not the New Life Superstore where you go to get everything that you need. This is your church. You are to You've been gifted by God to serve and bless and build up the body of Christ and come in every weekend or whenever you come and not with the attitude of what's in it for me, what can I get out of it, but what can I put into it? Jesus did not say, you know, go into all the world and make consumers. He said make disciples who lay down their lives. Take up your cross daily and follow me. That's not consumer Christianity. That is sold out, consumed Christianity. That's what he calls us to. So New Life Gehenna, could it be that we've been influenced by our culture? You know, inside your bulletin on the inside flap on the right, we've listed and we're going to be listing some openings, some opportunities to serve in our church. Some needs, I think the ones listed this week are in our 
bookstore and in our children's ministry and in our worship arts community. And as a spiritual shepherd, my desire is that along about Wednesday, I'd get emails from our directors and say, hey, those are all taken care of. Don't worry about it. The body of Christ, people stepped forward and offered themselves and they're now serving. Number four, are we going to live for our fame or his fame? (laughs) That's a question I think that New Life Church needs to ask. Are we going to showcase our gifts for our glory? Hey, look at me. Or are we going to say, you know what? I'm just grateful to have any gifts that I can use to serve the body of Christ. And I want to do it for his glory. Number five, our agenda or his agenda? Did you know that sometimes people come into a church with their own agenda? Did you know that? And that can ruin a church. That can absolutely ruin a church when people come in with their own agenda. But disciples decide they're going to exchange their agenda for the agenda of Jesus Christ. Say, I'm going to lay my agendas down and trust God to reveal his agenda for this church, his dreams, his plans, his vision, his priorities, his goals. I love the... The truth that I've learned recently that Jesus Christ is the senior pastor of his church. First Peter calls him the chief shepherd. We would translate that senior pastor, chief shepherd, senior pastor. Jesus is the senior pastor of this church and he's calling someone right now. And you need to pick that up and answer it. (laughs) He's got some directions for us, perhaps. Either that or the roast is burning and you need to get home. Is it going to be about Jesus or about us? I find it interesting that in these opening nine verses of 1 Corinthians, Paul mentions the name Jesus Christ no less than nine times. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus. You can go through and circle them. Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Lord Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus, Jesus Christ. Could it be that the church in Corinth was having holiness issues Because they've gotten their eyes off of Jesus Christ. Just like us in our church so often get our eyes off of Jesus Christ. And onto ourselves and our deal and what we want and our agendas. And Paul's saying, no, 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 no. It's about him. We're not here to make a name for ourselves. We're not here to make much of ourselves. We're here to make much of Jesus Christ. I think God's doing that in, in our church, don't you? I think Jesus is pulling us back to Jesus-centeredness. Oh, that we would be a church that would love Jesus Christ and pursue Jesus Christ and bow the knee and submit to Jesus Christ and pray in His name and live for Jesus and minister as the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ and deflect all credit and all glory and all praise to Him. Even when people might lavish praise on us, we go, well, you know, thank you, but were it not for Jesus, we'd we'd have nothing. So what's it going to be for new life? Jesus or us? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And yes, the things of earth will start to grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace.
let's submit to Jesus' authority. Let's repent of our sin of self-will and self-focus and self-absorption and self-centeredness and selfish promotion and selfish ambition. He died for us, it says, that we would no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died for us. So, Lord, in this moment now, this sacred moment, would you come to us? Would you grace us with your presence? God, many people in this room right now, just they need to come repenting. It's been all about them. They've been demanding that everybody else serve them. And yet today they've heard that message that you call us to lay down our lives for you and for each other. Lord, help us to come submitting today, kneeling, and even just taking a few moments there and just reinforcing in our own hearts, he's the master, I'm the servant, he's the potter, I'm the clay. And Lord, then, I hope that many of us will come with someone else, come together, signifying that we're a body, we're connected, we're not flying solo here, we're not doing this alone. And as we do that, would you please pour out your grace upon us because we so need your divine favor. So come to us now.